Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the Scripture that make them become more real for us because we believe there's a power in the Scriptures that we need in our lives, and that if we can uh, apply them better to our lives, which we can when they become real, that we drive in more power from them, and we need that desperately, partially because that increases the amount that we learn from the Spirit in our lives, and we need that desperately. And so I hope that uh, as you listen to these podcasts, it pushes you into studying the Scriptures themselves and gaining more from them and having the Spirit more in your life. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and this is our third shortcast for this week's reading in Come Follow Me, where we study the book of Judges. We did a longer interview with Jeff Chadwick, and then we've done three, well, this will be the third shortcast, where we go through a couple of the stories in each shortcast, uh, trying to help us understand them just a little bit more. Today, or in this shortcast, we are going to look briefly at the story of Samson, and then we're going to look at one other story that is not covered in the reading. Uh, now, I talked about Samson quite a bit already uh, with uh, Jeff Chadwick, and so uh, and also, if you want the details and the maps and the pictures and geography and so on, then I would encourage you to look at my uh, YouTube channel, the playlist for Old Testament class vi videos, and Judges 2. Uh, that's the second one on Judges. Uh, we go through the Samson story in detail. Here, I just want to touch on a couple of things. One, that Samson is fighting against the Philistines. So the Philistines, uh, and we mentioned this briefly, but I want to give a little more detail. Um, we did this briefly with Jeff Chadwick. The, the Philistines come from a group of people called the Sea Peoples. The Sea Peoples, we don't know exactly where they came from, probably somewhere in the Aegean. Um, and they came and they fought their way across uh, Turkey, the Hittites and the, the Mitanni and the uh, Assyrians. But they also went down south and they attacked the Egyptians. But Ramses III defeated the Philistines and forced them to settle on the coastal plain of Canaan or of Israel. And so that's where they end up living. And they end up taking the name Philistine. Uh, there were Philistines, a group of people called Philistines in the land before that. I don't know if they all died out and the, this group of sea people settled where those people were or exactly how they get that name. They're called Pleshet by the Egyptians. I mean, you can hear the similarity, but uh, in any case, uh, they end up being called the Philistines. And once they arrive on the scene, they're Israel's arch enemy for quite a while. They're on the coast trying to push in towards the, the inland, towards the mountains, and the Israelites are in the, the mountains and the inland and trying to push towards the coast. And so naturally, they are going to come into conflict with each other. And so you've heard the uh, Israelites fighting the Moabites and the Canaanites and the uh, Jebusites and the uh, Midianites before this, but once the, the Philistines or the Sea Peoples arrive on the scene, then it's Philistine, Philistine, Philistine. And really, the Samson story is the first story where they're fighting against the Philistines. Now, as I mentioned in uh, when the, the podcast with Jeff Chadwick, if you will study, and I will just urge you to go through and look for this yourself in the scriptural story, if you'll study that story, you'll see that when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson, every single time he uses that gift for himself. So Samson is the Israelite judge with the greatest potential for delivering Israel. He has this superhuman strength when the Spirit of the Lord moves upon him, uh, as opposed to, you know, Gideon, who seems to be a decent fighter, Barak, uh, uh, Jephthah, and so on. Uh, I mean, they seem to be decent fighters, but Samson has this incredible gift, and he should use it to deliver Israel. Instead, he uses it for himself, and you find he does not deliver Israel. Does he kill a lot of Philistines? Yes. Does he deliver them for the Philistines? No, it will be David who does that. 
Samuel makes some great strides towards it. Saul a little bit. David's the one who delivers them. Samson fails in delivering them from the Philistines. And I think it is because Samson used his gift for himself. So the great lesson, and this is where it becomes really real for me, besides the, the geography and archaeology and, and so on that uh, you can see in these other videos, but, but it becomes really real for me when I think about the gifts that God has given all of us. And we all have gifts. We need to recognize that we all have gifts. And I think that sometimes in our culture, we put emphasis on some of the more visible but often less important gifts. All right. So, for example, it is fantastic. Some people have a fantastic gift of being able to sing or compose or play music or speak well or do podcasts well or something along those lines. And those are great gifts. I certainly love listening to the music and it helps me feel the spirit. And I love great speakers and they help me learn and feel the spirit. But I think those gifts actually pale a comparison with someone who has the gift of charity or some or the gift of compassion or someone who has the gift of recognizing who is in need and knowing how to reach out to them. Someone who has the gift of making children feel loved. Those are powerful and very, very important gifts. They're often not very visible, usually behind the scenes. And so we, we value these visible gifts. Uh, and not these more important gifts. I hope we'll value all gifts, but I hope that you'll recognize the importance of whatever gift, whatever gift it is that you have. And then you have to ask yourself, how are you using that gift? If you're using it largely for yourself, then maybe your nickname should be Samson. And I have to ask myself, do I use the gifts God has given me for myself? And so there are times where I have to admit to myself, maybe I'm edging towards Samson. And instead, I have to say I should use these gifts instead to build up the kingdom of God. Then hopefully we could be called Gideon or Joseph Smith or something like that. I find it really interesting that if you study this cycle that we talked about um, in the, one of the earlier episodes where we see that the children of Israel prosper and then they turn to idolatry, they forget that their prosperity is from God and they turn to idolatry and then God has to humble them. And then they, they cry out and repent, and then God raises a judge or a deliverer to deliver them, and then they, they get blessed again. And we see that cycle a number of times, and we see it, for example, with uh, Othniel and Ehud, and we see it with uh, Deborah and Barak, and with uh, Gideon, and with Jephthah. The interesting thing is when they mention this cycle for Samson, they mention the idolatry part and the being oppressed part. They never mention that Israel is repenting. And I wonder if that's why they got Samson. I don't know. But in any case, I hope we'll learn from Samson and that we will use our gifts to help God's children and, and to build up the kingdom of God and not for ourselves. That's a great lesson from Samson. Now, let's move on. We're going to skip a couple stories, but we're going to cover the last big story in the, uh, the book of Judges. And it's probably the most gruesome, worst story in the Old Testament. Uh, and so I have to say that the, the book of Judges holds up the bad things that they did. And this is probably Israelites' low point. Um, this really is when they are doing poorly. And the Bible doesn't hide that from us. It's going to show us so that we can learn from it. So let's get into this very weird and gruesome story that is Israelites' low point, partially so we can learn from it and partially because it has a few details that help us make sense of some other stories that come later in the, the scripture. So we're going to go start in chapter 19. And, and it starts out by telling us in the days when there was no king in Israel. All right. So that's, that's the period of the judges. Now, we're going to see later that God didn't want them to have a king. He wanted to be their king, and they should turn to righteous leaders and follow them in righteousness. 
Um, but we should also be aware that this book is being composed by people who work for a king. So while they will record the parts where God talks about that, they also have a little bit of a bias that they like kings. So you're going to see a couple of times they're going to try and couple doing poorly with not having a king, even though that's not how God himself would put it. In any case, you have this person um, who is from Ephraim and lives up in Mount Ephraim, so kind of the center of the country, um, and he marries a concubine from Bethlehem, Judah. There's more than one Bethlehem, but this is Bethlehem, Judah. So that's in the tribe of Judah. This is the same Bethlehem that David is from and later Christ is from. Now, let's make sure we understand what it means by concubine. Um, the concubine means that he has a wife who is not a free person. So it's not a sex slave or anything like that. He's married a wife who's not a free person because there are still servants and slaves in Israel. And we've touched on that before, but let's make sure we understand this. Um, God took them where they were. Like every other culture around them, they, they came from cultures of slavery. They were slaves. And so they had servants and slaves themselves. But God gives them a set of laws that teach them to A, think of even their servants as people, and B, teach them to take such good care of them that it's really not very profitable. And these two things combined will make it so that among Judaism, slavery just dies out. Really, the only culture I know of where that happens. Uh, without uh, naturally, instead of kind of through all sorts of conflict, um, they they saw had to see these people as people, and the, the rabbis would later write it was more profitable to pay them than it was to have them as slaves. So slavery stopped. So God took them where they were and moved them uh, to a different place over time by teaching them. Uh, but in any case, at this point, they have uh, servants and slaves, and so he has this uh, woman who is a servant whom he marries, and so she's called a concubine. And he seems to love her, and she, he brings her back home with him to Ephraim, to the Mount, Mount of Ephraim. But at, at some point, we get in chapter 19, verse 2, she plays the whore, and she goes away from him back to her father's house. And she's there for four months. And he eventually comes to get her, and he speaks friendly to her, and he woos her and tries to, to have her want to be with him again. But you get this story, his father-in-law, the girl's father, loves his daughter. And he's happy that she's with him. And so she kind of gets him to stay with him for longer, keeps saying, let's eat and, and drink and have a good time here. And he's just drawing this out so we can have as many days with his daughter as possible. I kind of get that. I've got a married daughter. She's got a great husband, but, you know, I kind of liked having my daughter around. Uh, so I still try and get them to come over for dinner as often as possible and whatever else so I can be with my daughter. So I get this, right? Um, so... On the fourth day, they're going to leave, but the father-in-law, this, this wonderful girl's um, father, uh, and I, I assume she's, uh, I don't know what it means by play the whore. I don't know if that just means that she left him or if that means she actually played the whore. Either way, she seems to have trying to be a good person. I don't really know, but I'm going to call her a wonderful girl. And um, she, uh, this her father gets them to eat and, and party with them so much that they don't make it out on the fourth day. So on the fifth day, they're ready to go, and the father tries it again, and they eat for a little while, but then eventually the, uh, the husband says, no, we're leaving this time. But they've left so late, they're not going to get uh, where it would be a good place to stay until pretty late, and that's an important part of the story. So they get up, and they leave, and about nighttime, they're going past Jerusalem. It is called Jabus at this point. Um, the Jebusites live there, and they're called Jebusites because it's Jabus, or it's called Jabus because they're Jebusites. I don't know which one. So you might remember that when 
the Canaanites all came against the town of Gibeon, and the Israelites came and fought them there, and the sun and the moon stood still, and great hailstorms came. The Jebusites from Jerusalem were from Jebus, were part of that group that were in that army that were defeated. So the army was defeated, but the Israelites didn't get down to the city and take the city. And so there were still people there, and maybe some people from the army came back anyway. They, this is a generation later, and they've, they're doing all right. They're still in that city. And um, this man from Ephraim says, we can't stay the night there. They're, they're not Israelites. They're not safe. They may kill us. We, we can't stay the night there. So he keeps traveling until really late when they get to the city of Gibeah. Now, you may recognize that name. It's often called Gibeah Saul. This is where Saul is from, but Saul is a generation later. All right. So Gibeah belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem, or Jebus, is the southern end of Be Benjamin. Bethlehem is the northern end of Judah. So they're now in the tribe of Benjamin when they get to Gibeah, and um, they're going to stay there. This is where Israelites live. And so they find an Israelite who will take them in late at night, and this nice Israelite brings in this Levite and his wife and um, takes care of them. But Israel is not righteous at this time. Let's be very clear about that. There's plenty of wickedness and uh, uh, terrible things going on in Israel, and this story will highlight that, because what happens is a group of men from Benjamin come and forcibly take this woman, um, the, the Levite's wife, and they gang-rape her to death. This is as abhorrent as it gets. This is terrible. It is wicked, pure wicked, pure evil, abhorrent, they gang rape her to death. It's a terrible thing. Now, this man seems to be devastated when he finds that she is dead and that uh, this is how she's died. He's absolutely devastated, and he feels like justice needs to be done. And he engages in something that seems to be an interesting twist in what seems to be a practice uh, that Israel and, and possibly we, we have some little hints that maybe other people did this. So, for example, at one point when Saul wants to call people to battle, all the 12 tribes to battle, he cuts up an ox and an ox represent both Jehovah and the tribes in some ways. He cuts it into 12 pieces, sends one piece to each of the tribes of Israel and, and tells them to please assemble for battle. So they each come back with uh, their piece. And that's kind of like assembling the ox again. They're all coming together and now they're all called and ready together for battle. So this man, in a really weird, macabre, bizarre story, takes his concubine and cuts her into 12 pieces and sends it out to all the 12 tribes and says, come and help me seek vengeance and justice for the people who did this terrible thing. And they do. They come and they say, this is terrible. Let's go get uh, justice from these men in, in uh, Benjamin that did this. So they come down to Gibeah. But at this time, as we've said, there is no king. Each of the it's, it, Israelite is very tribal society. It's a very, very tribal society. And so uh, sometimes the tribes will gather together to go to battle against someone else. Sometimes they battle against each other. Um, but, but clans and tribes and family, this is what it's all about. So when the rest of the tribes come and they want justice from the, these men in Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin says, no way. People from other tribes aren't going to touch someone from our tribe. And they warn the people of Benjamin, no, you need to deliver them up. And the Benjaminites say, no way. And so the rest of the other 11 tribes say, let's go to battle against Benjamin. Uh, and they're actually not successful for a while. And, and some bad blood arises over this and so on. But eventually, they really decimate the tribe of Benjamin. And they, they bring these men, these abhorrent criminals to justice. But now they have a tribe that they've almost completely wiped out. And now they're, they're all devastated about that. They say, we can't lose a tribe in, in Israel. 
Um, but we need someone for the, the few men that have survived to marry so that they can have children. And they said, wait a minute. Oh, now we have a problem because when we were losing this battle and everything was going so terrible, we all took vows that they would never marry our daughters, but they need to marry someone so they can have children. What do we do? And then someone said, oh, I've got an idea. Is there anyone anywhere uh, that didn't come to battle? Someone from one of the tribes that didn't come to battle that should have, because if they didn't, then they wouldn't have made that vow. And it turns out that there are a group of men over on the other side of the River Jordan in the area of Gilead in a town called Jabesh Gilead. So Jabesh of Gilead. Um, th this, uh, so this is in modern day Jordan or Transjordan, Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Um, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, there's this the, kind of north and uh, east of, the, of Gibeah uh, down towards the river. There is this group that never went to battle. And so they said, okay, you can marry their daughters. Uh, they may not like that, but here's, here's an idea. Um, and you'll recognize, I think, that uh, the story in the Book of Mormon where the wicked uh, priests of Noah, uh, I think they're familiar with this story from the Book of Judges, and they model some of what they do on it, because um, what happens is they say to the men of Benjamin, and we get this in chapter 21, uh, especially around verse uh, 19 to 21, they say, you know what? Every year, the women of this area, they come out and they do a dance. Um, and they come from Shiloh and they do a dance. So when they come out to do a dance, go catch a bunch of them and marry them and have children. And that's exactly what happens. Again, I'm saying this is not the best story ever. This is bad stuff. Um, but they go and kidnap these women and they marry them. And apparently the women fall in love with the guys and so on. And so the tribe of Benjamin continues on because they've married, especially the people from the area of Gibeah, because they've married the uh the daughters of jabesh gilead now we keep, need to keep this in mind because this is going to come up twice in the story with saul and so we'll understand it better but this is also how benjamin continues and i think as i said it also represents israel at its lowest point in fact the book of judges ends with this verse ch chapter 21 verse 25 in those days there was no king in israel every man did that which was right in his own eyes that's why they are at this low point that's why these abhorrent and terrible things are happening. Fortunately, we're going to get Samuel. Uh, well, we're going to have Ruth as the next uh, story because the story of Ruth takes place during the period of the judges. And I love Ruth. I'm excited to do that next week. One of my favorite books. And then we're going to get the story of Samuel, um, who finally starts to get Israel to really repent. And we're going to see them kind of continue to repent as we go through Saul and especially David and so on. Um, but Samuel's the one who really turns this, this thing around. But we're just finishing the period where everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. And this is a recipe for disaster for any society, but especially a covenant society. Instead, I hope that we ask ourselves, are we doing that which is right in our own eyes? Or are we keeping our covenant and loving God and loving each other more than anything else? That is the great lesson to learn from these terrible stories is, are we doing God's will? Are we using our gifts for God? Are we loving God, loving each other, and keeping covenant? Or are we doing that which is right in our own eyes? And, and we need to ask our, that question about ourselves in general and also about each little thing we're doing. Am I doing this because it's what seems right to me? Or is this because I love God? If we will keep that as our compass, oh, we won't become the kind of people that are having these struggles that we see them having in the book of Judges. Hopefully we can learn from our Israelite ancestors and avoid these low points and instead be great covenant keepers. 